0: Hello everybody, my name is Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. Today's episode is a long episode. My guest is Kande Yumkeller. Kande did two terms as Director General of UNIDO, and then took on a special role building the importance of energy within the UN system. He was invited to be Chair of UN Energy by Ban moon secretary general. He then turned that into the year of sustainable energy for all in 2012. Then that became sustainable energy for all. And that resulted in what we all know and love as SDG number seven, the sustainable development goal seven. It's a long story, but it's a story full of insight into the importance of energy access, sustainable energy, energy efficiency in the developing world. It's also a story full of insight into how things work within the multilateral system, the UN, the World Bank, the regional development banks, and so on. And at the end, there's a twist, because Kandé Youngkeller goes into politics in his native Sierra Leone. So bear with us. It is a longer episode than normal, but I think you're going to find it fascinating. Let's bring Kande Junkeller into the conversation. Kande, thank you so much for joining us here on Cleaning Up.
1: It's great to see you. Thank you for having me on your show, and it's always wonderful to collaborate with you.
0: Well, you're very kind, and in fact, we've been collaborating for... I was trying to work it out, um, it's, it's over a decade, it may be 12 or 13 yes. years now, isn't that right?
1: Yes, indeed, yes, indeed. We've done quite a bit of journey together and achieved quite a bit ourselves, but we also know we've not even achieved the major goals that we put forward, but at least everybody's rallying around those goals we established.
0: Well, yes, there is a long way to go and a lot of them are focused on 2030, uh, the sustainable energy for all goals. But let's start, I mean, you know, we could go back. you have such a fascinating resume. We could start almost anywhere, but um, we should probably, let's start with uh, when, uh, when, when you invited me to um, be part of UN Energy. Um, and that was, for me, it was one of the first sort of pro bono, one of the first multilateral things that I did after founding New Energy Finance. I really didn't know what to expect, but our very dear joint friend, uh, Morgan Bazilian said, there's this extraordinary guy, Kande Jumpeller, I've, I've decided to go and work for him and we want you to join his advisory group. And I thought, well, I, I, I have no idea what that means, um, but, I, but I, uh, I decided to go for it. What were you, that was 2008. So you were still um, director general of, at UNIDO, were you not?
1: Well, um, at that time, I was already director general of UNIDO since 2005. I was elected to that position. The first person from Sub-Saharan Africa to head that institution as Chief Executive and Under Secretary General. Uh, then, of course, since then, I was always talking about the need for developing countries to have access to energy. Kofi Annan was Secretary General then, and we were all members of what we call the Chief Executives Board. This is all the heads of agencies of the United Nations, the President of the World Bank, and um, Managing Director of the IMF. We had this group called Uh, the chief executive's board. And whenever we talked about global issues, I'll always talk about energy. So Kofi Annan left the UN and Ban Ki-moon came in. Ban Ki-moon made climate change his top priority. And he had a recommendation in his table to revive a group called UN Energy or Abolish It. And that is a group that was established in Rio Plus 10 in Johannesburg in 2002. So he had a recommendation to kill it or revise it. So some people advise him, they say, hey, there's a guy in, in the meetings that when Kofi Annan called chief executives meeting that always talked about energy. Why don't you ask him to head it? So they called me up. They were looking at several other things that I could do. So when I met you, he had just appointed me um, chair of UN Energy, a group of 22 agencies, including the, the World Bank, and um, to see what I can do with it. Of course, I loved it, because as you know, I said, I was talking about energy access before then. But now I had a platform to do it from that was also part of um, the Secretary General's drive for climate change. So I I was given this uh, animal and I started interviewing people. I said, so what were you doing with UN Energy? They explained that, well, these agencies talk about the, the importance of energy and the need for access to energy, but it's never gaining prominence, gained prominence. I interviewed UNDP, World Bank, FAO, all of those guys who were involved. And after six months, Akim Steiner and I, Akim Steiner was heading UNEP, and he was a big man pushing on climate change and sustainability. So we realized that, look, most of the action for energy is in the private sector. Let us approach the Secretary General and suggest to him to set up a multi-stakeholder group that included private sector people. Because we can only advocate as UN, we can help uh, push global uh, coalitions to work on climate change and energy, but we didn't have the solutions, the money, the technology that needed to be deployed. So I sent a letter, this is an interesting story, I sent a letter to the Secretary General, the new Secretary General, suggesting setting up a multi-stakeholder group that letter never reached him um, and for, for a few months. So I went to Washington, met with team, Senator Timworth, at that time was leading UN Foundation Eternal, And I said, hey, I sent a letter to the Secretary General. It, I didn't receive a reply, but um, I'm still waiting. What can you do about it? A few weeks later, I got a letter that uh, was a pro formal letter in a sense, because they say, hey, good idea, but why don't you form a technical group? And what we had proposed was a high-level group with presidents, Nobel laureates, CEOs of companies. And I got a reply, a bureaucratic reply saying, no, the new secretary general is not interested in advisory groups and multi-stakeholder groups right now. Why don't you form an expert group? So I went to Team And we're sitting in his office and he's listening to me. He say, look, this is the bureaucracy telling you, replying you. This is not the secretary general. Cut a long story short. A week later, thanks to Tim, we got our appointment. Mm. And so Akim Steiner, myself, Jamal Sagir from the World Bank, we started strategizing. We have 15 minutes with this guy. How do we convince him what we want to do? And we were walking along the street, just across the First Avenue, to go to the UN. Akim said, "I know what it is. Call it a multi-stakeholder group." We visited him. We were planning, and we had choreographed each of us two two minutes. I do the intro. I give it to so Akim to make the climate case. Jamal Sagir will give him the numbers on energy access around the world. FAO will talk about the food connection. So we had our ten minutes quickly. And so our surprise, the Secretary General says, let me tell you a story about living without energy after the Korean War. Instead of 15 minutes, we got about 45 minutes. And in the middle of it, it's about Mr. Keller. the way to deal with this is to have a multi-stakeholder group with private <laughs> sector. <laughs> Thank God. And some of the advisors who had replied to our letter were sitting there. And I said, well, Mr. Secretary General, I actually have a proposal but I wasn't sure you'll, you'll want it. And if, if you give us 24 hours, we'll present you with terms of reference and so on. He said, why don't you bring it in? He said, because you are right. I can't deal with climate change without dealing with energy. So I gave you a long story how from, a, from, asked, from being asked to be head of a UN coordination group to moving then to get a multi stakeholder group. And we had initially 17 people and some heavyweights, for example, Carlos Slim of Mexico, at that time, he was the richest man in the world. We had the CEO of Statoil. We had Sontag, big solar company. I had Vattenfall, big power company, um, and so on. Um, so we, we selected it. You also agreed that, okay, I'll give you time. And lo and behold, we came up with a report just half, uh, just before Copenhagen. And at that time, our interest was very narrow. How do we help Secretary general with regular briefings so that he can have an energy narrative or story when he's talking about climate change? And to our surprise, because of the private sector guys in the group, they helped us realize how big the energy issue was, how it was the defining issue for climate change. So uh, listening to Vattenfall, yourself, Carlos Slim, from his own vantage point, the digital economy, which was really his thing, telecommunications, Uh, the CEO of Statoil was very helpful. He introduced me to gas technology, flew me over Slipner, at that time, one of the most leading. In fact, it was the most advanced oil platform in the world that had started doing carbon capture and storage. So anyway... um, we had UN Energy. We created a report uh, called the Advisory Group on Energy and Climate Change. Submitted the report, and then the Copenhagen negotiations failed.
0: Right. So I mean, it's great to hear um, some of the background because, like I said, I just it was I was so busy building new energy finance, and I had gotten to know Morgan because he was working in Ireland um, with uh, Eamon Ryan, yes. and. Um, you know, I'd been over there and, so on, and suddenly he asked me to do this thing. It was, it was one of the very, very first, I didn't know what to expect. Okay, so I'll give you my version of this. Is there something going on? The UN's getting all excited. I wasn't, I was not aware that, you know, I thought that you had kind of spotted energy and then taken it and sort of banged down the doors about energy and so, but it seems like there was a bit more luck involved or just the planets just aligned. But anyway, all indeed. I knew was that suddenly I was invited to go to Mexico um, to a tour meeting hosted by Carlos Slim, the richest man in the world and I, I jumped on a plane as one would. I turn up in Mexico and literally I, I check into the hotel and there's a minibus that takes me to some office building and I'm ushered upstairs, zoomed upstairs, and I'm in a room that's just full of the most extraordinary and yeah. so when I say extraordinary, I mean <laughs> Lucas Cranachs yeah. and Constables and yeah. Frida Carlos and yeah. uh, uh, just, uh, you know, there was, I think there was a um, Leonardo uh, yeah. or two. And and this it's just in this sort of like a conference room. And we're having dinner and there are mariachi playing. And I'm like, yeah. this <laughs> is not what I'm used to, right? I don't know what's going yeah. on here. I like it, but I don't understand it. And do you remember that dinner?
1: I I remember that dinner. I was not expecting it in that setting. I thought we were going to some hotel or restaurant and Carlos took us to his main building. And you know, he had devoted some floors to some of his best collections. That's right, so he
0: was, because what he was doing, I think, was that was the collection that went off afterwards um, to the um, Sumaya Museum in... in Yes, he was building uh, the the museum. That was the collection. It was just in this office building. There was a, a, a Pieta on the stairs, an incredible um, statue. You know, and it, it was blowing my mind, that dinner. And, uh, but that was the collection, wasn't it?
1: Yes, he hosted that meeting for us. And it was important. People like you and others, when they realized where that meeting was hosted, many people showed up. They said, <laughs> if, if the richest man in the world is hosting a meeting on energy. It must be important to him. And I remember him telling me, he said, Mr. Yumkela, do you realize I turned down a meeting with my president and explained to him the reason is I'm hosting a meeting for the UN Secretary General. So he forgave me. But thanks to him, indeed, many of you came. And it was a defining meeting. Because then we were still struggling with the narrative. What would be the best narrative? Energy is so complex, um, as it is touches as it touches everything in the world. Um, how do we narrow it down to to, to um, a simplified narrative or narratives that politicians, diplomats would accept? And what would be the yeah, go ahead? I'm
0: yeah, sorry, because part of the background here is, of course, that this was still in the. Uh, millennium Development Goals period when exactly. energy was really not on the radar screen and certainly no. not as a separate issue. In uh, fact, exactly. it, it, was, it was sort of the, the, absent, the absent Millennium Goal in a way, wasn't it?
1: In, in fact, that's what we called it. We said this is the missing Millennium Development Goal um, and you cannot achieve the, uh, most of the Millennium Development Goals without dealing with energy. And so that was part of the struggle. We had experts uh, from different walks of life there and different institutions, academics. And as you know, everybody had their pet issue. So let me talk about the narrative and what I think we all achieved in, 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 in Mexico and refined as we moved along was to narrow down to about three narratives. We needed a narrative that will make the big five in the UN, United States, UK, France, Uh, um, China, Russia, but also India, Brazil, and the developing countries come to the table. So we came up with a narrative of energy for development, energy for poverty reduction, meaning energy as as an enabler of the millennium development goals. You can't have hospitals running well. You can't have access to clean water. You can't fight poverty without access to energy. So we had to come up with that storyline, that narrative. The second one was we were already being told by some, oh, you're not serious. You want to deal with energy, it has to be only renewables. In fact, now that you're talking about energy access, it seems as if you want more coal-fired plants and more pollution in the world. Therefore, we needed a narrative that will appeal to the climate change environment group. And so in the first narrative, we said energy for all meaning access for all. So some people very cleverly, diplomats, and I say, well, why don't you have add sustainable energy for all? Ah, that was appealing to the climate change people because it was about renewables and energy efficiency. And we could show the immediate co-benefit with climate. The third one was you. You and the private sector folks gave us the private sector. Line. And I have a, an anecdote here in Mexico. I was in the middle of my pontification, my advocacy to you and the others in the room. Carlos Slim was sitting. And you stopped me in my tracks and you said, Kande, we like what you're saying. We agree that we can fight energy, with po- uh, 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 we can fight poverty by making energy available. We agree you have a rights based approach because I used to talk about uh, energy is a right, a human right. And then you said, but wait a minute, Kande, we are business people people finance. We like value propositions. So what is your value proposition to us? Because we have to report to our shareholders. And I was frank with you, I said, Michael, I don't know what you mean by value proposition. I said, and that's the point, I want you to teach me. And Carlos and others, all everybody started laughing, others joined in. But I have a feeling that endeared me to you and several private sector folks that hey, the UN is humble enough to say he doesn't understand our language. So you fast forward. After that, we started talking about de-risking. I started learning from you guys what we meant by de-risking investments, green bonds, innovative financing, you know, and so on and so forth. So Mexico was important in defining those narratives and also agreeing later on that, look, let's not talk about everything. Let's take two things. And we chose energy access and energy efficiency. And at that time we embedded renewables in the access story. That yes, if you have renewables, then you can have decentralized energy for community-based power production. So that's where we embedded it. It was much later that we unpacked it and said, no, renewables should have its own identity.
0: That's right, because eventually there were those three targets, which was it was about renewables, it was about efficiency, and it was about all, the emphasis on that all. So again, it's great to hear um, that episode from your perspective, because what had happened to me is I had been invited to talk to a few conferences. There was a very uh, memorable occasion um, where I was invited to talk to environment ministers in Monaco, actually in about 2007. And I had stood up and I had showed my charts. I showed my data and I had said, there's plenty of money for clean energy. There's a wall of money. Don't worry about it. Loads of money. Um, But you have to be attractive to the money and I thought this was a perfectly acceptable contribution and I then went from the stage there were some breakouts and some workshops and um, It was one of those big rooms and the you know The sort of UN style system where people put their card vertical in order to speak And I thought now they're going to speak and they're going to say, you know, okay How do we structure to get some of this money one after the other? They, these, um, the, the, the delegations, not the ministers, but the delegations attacked me. They said I was the problem because there is no money and uh, the idea that it would be available only as investment, we need, it is our right to have clean energy and it is our right to have development. And this, And, and I said, look, I'm talking about private money. You can take that approach to public money, right? It may or may not work, but it's gonna be this big. What I'm talking about is this much money massive amounts of money in the private uh, uh, savings, but then you have to attract it. You can't force it. You can't use that rights-based approach. And so I had sort of, um, I had a bit of scar tissue because I was really, I mean, people really attacked me at at that meeting. Uh, And so when I then found that you were receptive, this was actually quite an exciting, you know, to say, okay, well, now we can work together on how do we acknowledge the rights, but create propositions that the private sector can, can back and, to, and can fund. And I think, it's been very, I think it's been very productive. It doesn't do everything, but it's done a lot.
1: Well, um, I should also say that the first report, uh, what we call the advisory group on energy and climate change report that we gave to the Secretary General became a little complicated. That was we 2011,
0: had- wasn't it, that we produced that?
1: That, no, the second report is what we did in 2011.
0: Oh, okay. The, the so that report
1: was about 2009. 2009,
0: now, okay, right.
1: Again, Why we, is we it controversial?
0: I missed all of this.
1: Yes, we had collected so many good ideas. I mean, we also had Sultan El-Jabar. At that time, he was CEO of Mazda, the yep. new city that they were going to build that would be zero emission city. He was also there. He hosted meetings for me in the UAE, in Abu Dhabi. And at one point in New York, it was the CEO of Stato, Helge Lund, Lund, We were sitting together. And then he asked me a question at lunchtime. And remember, he was CEO of, what, the second biggest gas supplier to Europe. But he will give time. Carlos Lim will give time also by, by, uh, by video to be in our meetings. So Helge Lund asked me the question, so can they? With all these many ideas, how are you going to put this together in a small report? And you've said it should not exceed 15 pages, but energy is so complicated. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll get some guys to sit with us. They've been making notes. He said, let me tell you, call in Accenture. I said, oh, really? Sorry, Uh, um, it's not Accenture. It was uh, this group. Jeremy Oppenheimer was heading.
0: McKinsey. McKinsey.
1: Yeah. He said, call in McKinsey and they know how to put ideas together in simple sound bites, and they can help you get a report ready in three weeks, which is all you have left to give a report to the sexy general. And Jamal from the World Bank was next to me and he said, "But well, they're very expensive. So they gave me the contacts. And indeed, we called Jerry, uh, McKinsey. They handed me over to Jeremy Oppenheimer. And Jeremy listened to me and say, hey, this would be a very good opportunity because all of us want energy to be prominent. So, got a long story short, we worked out a good deal. He gave me some a huge discount because it was UN. And he came to the final meeting in Abu Dhabi. And I was really amazed. I had Senator Team Worth. I had all these CEOs there, about 17 of us. Carlos was on video. And I saw the the McKinsey team, four of them, they facilitated that session for me, picked out the good ideas we had, picked up our reports, and indeed in three weeks, we had a narrowed down report, met in Vienna, I hosted them two, three days with Morgan Basilian, my team joined them, and we came out with a simple report that went to the Secretary General. Now, then Copenhagen failed. And some ambassadors went to Ban Ki-moon in January before Davos. They said, we know you don't feel good. We didn't get this big deal we were expecting from Copenhagen. But guess what? You have some very good recommendations from a report that was given to you by that energy group you set up. Because strictly speaking, our work was finished. So they told him, go back and take that report. There are some very good recommendations. You can take action on those while we build the momentum for you for the next climate summit. So several weeks later, Secretary General went to Davos, came back, and I got a call from New York. Mr. Yumkela, the Secretary General and his team have looked at the report you gave him several months ago. Um, They want you to expand the advisory group. We've just had a good initiative on every woman, every child a big advisory group that has been very successful. We want to use this model, and now we need 40 to 50 people in the advisory group. And of course, I said to them, are you crazy? They said, no. We want to take more action on energy. Pleasant surprise. So we started putting names together, and that's the big advisory group that you played such a big role in because then now I I had some degrees of freedom. I could balance it out to bring in 15 private sector because I had 40 to 50 that I could choose from. So you remember Sam Moody Stewart, which shell at that time, yep. um, um, the former CEO of, um, of um, Duke Energy. Uh, at that Jim time, Rogers. Duke Energy. Yep. Yes, Jim Rogers. Jim Rogers, yeah. Biggest, uh, he had just done a merger Ch- with another big company. And yeah. Chad Holiday. Chad Chad was co-chair. So we went back to the Secretary General and I said, look, you made me chair the first one. This one, I cannot chair. If you want 10 to 15 big private sector guys, they need to see their face in it. So my advice is get a big CEO and a president or so to chair this. And I was told later that they showed him everything and he said, I will take a CEO, but I want Jumkela to chair it again. And they asked him why. They say Yumkela understands the politics. Energy issues are still very sensitive within the UN and he's proven now that he knows how to navigate the politics while advocating. So we looked through the names and Chad Holliday was very prominent because he was very helpful in Kofi Annan's Global Compact as former CEO of DuPont and now he was chairman of Bank of America. And lo and behold, Chad agreed to co-chair with me. And I'm sure, and I can tell you this, one of the benefits of, and so yes, from, from advising, just only advising on energy, we came up with this new initiative. I became, Chad and I became advisors on sustainable energy for all. So we formed the advisory group on sustainable Energy forum, and we were very clear with what we wanted. We wanted a sustainable development goal on energy. We wanted to go to Rio20 in Brazil, make big impacts more than any other group, and uh, so that more CEOs, we wanted to bring in the digital companies, utilities, we wanted to play big. And um, thirdly, to bring in civil society. And so that's where the UN foundation was very instrumental with Teterna and others, giving us that support from their side. And of course, governments like Norway, the UK, Austria, Denmark, Sweden, uh, all of them backed us with some initial money to finance this bigger group. But then we had heavyweights, as I said, CEO of Accenture, uh, Shell, Bank of America chairman, uh, and so on. You, you, can, you can provide your listeners with a list. It was an well, impressive thing.
0: Um, I think I met also then uh, Eldar Setre, who's the um, yeah. CEO of uh, Equinor now, or used to be Statoil yes. There was yes. um, John Kerry, I think, was in your group.
1: John Kerry was in the By the um, way, that's another story. I was asked, the, sec- the, the Secretary of State of the United States normally does not serve on external advisory groups. We want to know, Mr. Yumkela, how come our Secretary of the State agreed to serve on this one? That was a tip I got from a friend of his. They said, John Kerry is new Secretary of State, but his heart is in climate. If you approach him because of this ban came on, he might say yes. And you know, he set up a good team for us. Um, And they would brief him. He'll send back his comments through his team. So it was an A-list and several ministers from Europe, from Africa as well. Um, We put in some index.
0: You had the Petrobras
1: Petrobras Petrobras CEO, and uh, we had the president of the Brazilian Development Bank, all the development bank presidents, African Development Bank, Asian Development Bank. Uh, So again,
0: and and Michael Liebreich from Little Tiny New Energy Finance had been sold to Bloomberg, of course.
1: Yes, at that time you had sold off to Bloomberg, but here is what, and that group was important because we also did something well. We made Ban Ki-moon the chair and the president of World Bank the co-chair, which means we combined the convening power of the UN and convening power of the World Bank because you and some others have told me nothing happens without finance ministers. Even the UK or Germany, if they make commitments to solve climate change or solve global poverty, they have to go back to the exchequer, to the finance ministry and say, do we have money for the country to fulfill its pledge? So I have been advised by a number of you to say, look, if you want finance ministers from developing countries and the advanced countries, you got to get the World Bank in. So that convening power gave us Finance ministers, foreign ministers, ah, and energy ministers. Then we had Davos, uh, um, the CEO, president of Davos, uh, the Davos Klaus, Forum. Klaus, Klaus. Klaus. Klaus also gave us time and gave us a good team to back us up. So now what did you see? We were combining fora, but remember you had also developed now your annual forums. And I remember representing the Secretary General there that's right. And we so had
0: in the park. Do you remember? We went to the event boathouse in the, in the park, park in New York. And, and and do you know what I was doing? Because I, you know, it's fascinating to hear the story because I, I only saw one side of it. But you know what I did? I invited you to speak to what was then the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit, um, which was in a big conference center. But we did a special session for you in the boathouse. In and, the boathouse. And I thought, look, I've got all of these clients, all of these financiers, the developers, the energy companies, and most of them would not give um, the developing world time of day. They just, weren't, they just thought, it's not a place we can invest, our shareholders are not interested, it's risky, it's complicated, it's, it's corrupt, it's this, that, and the other, I'm not interested. And then Michael comes along and says, no, no, you need to come to this event because we're gonna do it nicely, and it's really exciting, there's stuff going on, and you need to listen to my friend Kande Yomkeller. And that's how I got yeah. them in the room, Uh, And that would have been 2010 or 11, I think. Yeah. Sometime around then. Yeah. Yeah. And you did a great job. You you knocked their socks. I think think the
1: first event you had was in Union Station, right? And then we moved to Central.
0: That's right. The Grand Union Station, that would have been early 2010. And then the park would have been 2011, when we really gave you your own event, and and we moderated it and everything.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then you saw. Sustainable Energy for All, we leveraged the the convening power of you, Accenture, Davos for the private sector. And Schwab gave us sessions that people will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to have a session like that. And he gave it to us almost, he gave it to us three times in a row, and then side events, because he also wanted to take action on climate and energy. So combining these convening powers brought so many more people to the table. UN Foundation helped us mobilize 2,000 NGOs. And all of this came together for all of us in Rio Plus 20. So we went to Rio Plus 20 as one of the most well-organized groups for Rio Plus 20. And we were the first group already in 2012 that defined three clear targets, universal access, doubling the share of renewables and also doubling, uh, doubling the annual rate of improvement of energy efficiency. It was after that Rio event. Okay.
0: But just let me, let me just stop there. You have to explain where I think for our, for our audience, uh, yeah. whether they're watching on YouTube or listening on, uh, on podcasts, Rio plus 20, that was 2012. That's the 20th anniversary of the original Rio well, summit. Yes. And also, it's 3 years before the end of the millennium development goals and the exactly. beginning of the next round so i think yeah. you know I, i'm sort of aware as an outsider at this point that things are getting really political within the un there's everything yes. going on uh, yeah. there's jockeying for positions within the agencies there's jockeying for positions within the sustainable development the millennium development goals nobody cared about because they didn't they you know when they first came in nobody knew that they would become a really big organizing principle. But by 2015, the Sustainable Development Goals, it became an absolute, um, it became a very contested space, didn't it? And that's what you inserted yourself into.
1: So you're looking at now, by by 2012, we had three years into everything we had done. And this does not include the many launches and uh, briefings we had to do in New York to educate the the diplomats there on the narratives and i got so much support from various embassies and then we had to deal with the politics um renewables energy at that time sounded anti oil so we needed to bring the oil countries into this discussion um and uh, uh, sultan erjaba from uae was very helpful then um we had to convince the brics remember the brics was becoming a very powerful political bloc, Russia, Brazil, China, uh, India. So I remember at that time, politics here matters. The US was also a little bit suspicious because I have been taught by some of the best research guys and environmental groups about all these climate targets. And the EU had come up with their 2020 targets for their own energy targets. So I said, hey, 2020 is romantic. So I'll come up with 30, 30, 30. And so I started talking about 30% renewables in the energy mix. And the environmentalists convinced me to say 40% improvement in energy efficiency. But they taught me to talk more about energy intensity. Right. Why is the politics important? Of course, the BRICS countries and some of the developing emerging economies said to me, "Kande." you're playing the climate card here. You're trying to smuggle into this discussion, things we're disagreeing in the climate negotiations. For example, why do you keep talking about energy intensity? Do you know why the energy intensity in India is high, or Brazil, or the emerging economies? Because we do the manufacturing. The advanced OECD countries are transitioning into the digital economy and services. So we will not support you with this energy intensity language. Why don't you talk about energy efficiency? I said, okay. So I had to switch from energy intensity to energy efficiency before Brazil. So when I went to Brazil to negotiate for special sessions for Sustainable Energy Forum, the experts gave me a hard time. Yeah. Um, But I learned from them. So I found language that was useful that they would buy, that India would buy. Did, did uh, you have to deal
0: with the coal um, issue? Because I remember around that time um, there was a, there were a lot of powerful people, and actually Jam, uh, Jamal Sagir was one of them, saying, yes. "Developing world." Has every right and even a responsibility to its people to build huge coal fired power stations. Of course, we now know South Africa, you know, this Medupe power station has been a catastrophe for South Africa and for its energy, you know, the economics of its energy system. But at that time, it was quite hard to say, no, 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 renewable energy uh, or cleaner, cleaner energy will, will be better because the economics hadn't yet plummeted. I mean, we're talking 2011. It was still pretty expensive. You know, now we all know, well, it was obvious that, you know, wind, solar and batteries and etc. cetera, et cetera, it's much easier to position. But at the time, there was quite a pushback, was there not? How did you deal big, with that?
1: Big pushback. Um, fortunately, I also had ESCOM in the advisory group. So I had the, all of the players on the table, the Brazilians, the South Africans, the Chinese, the Russians, uh, Saudi Arabia, oil, camp, oil groups. And we could see the backlash everywhere. Even me, African ministers, and others saying, what are you talking about, Candy? Some of us have coal in the Southern Africa region. Why should we not use it? And the economics was not right. So that's why the narrative of energy for development was important. Yeah. And then the narrative, but hey, you can do decentralized energy for community-based development. And energy efficiency is good for you because we also have numbers that developing countries, some of them were losing 30, 40% in transmission. So you put all this together, we went to Rio, we decided then to make sure that our politics was right for Rio. So I give you an example. I was asked to give a contribution to the negotiators for the Rio outcome document. I sat with the UN colleagues, we came up with a paragraph. All we wanted was a paragraph in the outcome document so that we can make the case for a goal for energy. We gave them a paragraph. When they started negotiating, the paragraph became three pages, but the three pages were brackets. And in the UN negotiation, when we put anything in bracket, it means we don't agree on it. And most of the bracket was what green energy should not be because we were making a mistake. We were talking about green energy, not renewables. And everybody was suspicious. They said, wait a minute, you developed on coal. You industrialized on coal. What do you mean by green energy that is not tested? So, And you can see the brackets. What green energy cannot be? What sustainable energy cannot be? And it became three pages. I was discouraged. But two of my lead ambassadors who backed me in in New York, who knew the game, and they were the best knowledgeable in energy, they called me aside. They say, look, don't feel bad. The fact is you have their attention. They say, whenever we're negotiating energy, everybody shows up. They say, for you, that's a plus already because in the past, energy was a, a deal breaker because it always came down to the geopolitics of oil and gas. They say, for the first time, we have people continuously coming to the sessions. You see, the more they add what it is not, the more they want to be there because they didn't want somebody smuggling something. So by that time we got to Rio, everybody wanted to talk about energy, which was not easy before, but they would not agree on the clear language, but they agreed on the access language. Mm-hmm. So after Rio, so we succeeded, but the good news was the private sector came there. And every, most of the big private sector players wanted to be part of the energy events and the Brazilians, God bless their soul the Minister of Energy of Brazil, Petrobras, and these guys, they organized the events for me like you've never seen, and had TV, the media. Meanwhile, we had 2,000 NGOs backing an energy initiative, because, and they were mainly social sector NGOs, telling me what energy meant for delivering uh, uh, food security, explaining to people what energy meant for, help, for community health service care delivery. So we came to Rio and after the whole event, when they were adding up pledges, the energy sector had over 50 billion pledges. And Ellen Clark, who was part of our group, she was head of UNDP at that time, but also former prime minister of New Zealand. She said one of the most successful set of events were the energy events, because the companies came, you know, big time. They wanted to make the case for energy efficiency. Some of those that were already improving their supply chains. I mean, uh, um, so we, at the end of that, this part is interesting. I was asked by Chad Holiday and teamwork. They pulled me aside the last day. They said, Kande, what do you plan doing going forward? I said, oh, my job is finished. I was doing two jobs. I was running, you know, and I was running this energy show for three years. It's killing, because every two weeks I was in a plane going somewhere. So thank God, here's your report. You guys, your team, and Accenture and others that helped me with what we call high impact initiatives. Ooh. We had our second- I report remember,
0: ready. that was my idea. The high that was your you idea. remember, I you there was so many initiatives those. and I said, we got to exactly. get some structure here in Abu Dhabi. You, you, yep. you
1: came up with that. And some of those spun off to companies yep. and other activities, accelerator, I really said to oh, guys, gave me language of accelerators yep. for energy efficiency in buildings. Uh, um, so, um, they pulled me aside. I said, my job is finished. Now I can have a normal life. They said, no, we want you to do something. I said, what is that? Why don't you leave Unido and now leave this full time? They said, look, we have been around the block many times. We have seen something happen in Rio that we never saw before. Remember, Hillary Clinton came to our special event and pledged $2 billion for the US. The prime minister of Denmark was there I mean, presidents came to our show. Everybody wanted to make a statement somewhere inside Events on Energy. So these two guys pulled me aside to say, look, we want to convert this to an initiative. We're going to talk to the Secretary General to take this momentum and all these great ideas you have from the private sector on accelerators, high impact programs, give it full time.
0: Right. and so, so that's, and then that's the genesis of sustainable energy for sustainable energy as, for an, as initiative, an initiative as an actual organization with a budget etc
1: exactly and right. in Rio, in a dinner organized again uh, on behalf of um, mrs brutland as you know the former uh, uh, head of state of norway she's called Br- the mother Br- of state brutland. Br- brutland. yes Br- yep. they did a special event for her with People were giving her tributes because this was now Rio plus 20, two decades after her her wonderful initiative on sustainable development. It was in that dinner, some of the ministers were there. And I remember the Swedish minister coming over to my table. So, Kande, where do we go from here? And I said, well, we want to build a coalition. (laughs) I need money. I've been asked that maybe I should lead an initiative, but we don't have a single dime. She said, what do you need? I said, I don't know right now. She said, okay, I'll keep some money for you from the the Swedish development aid. And so from from talking to her, I started going to the other tables. I say, hey, we want to move forward. How much would you pledge? So you come back three months later, four months later, I had commitments already of almost two to $3 million to, to, to start this initiative to support the secretary general highest on staff. And that we built up to almost $11 million over time. So the, so the funny thing is for me, I was in
0: Rio Plus 20 and it was sort of triumphant because we were coherent. We had our lines. We had We knew the three goals and it was great. And then for the rest of 2012, though, it kind of went very quiet. So this was, remember, well, this was The year of sustainable energy for all. It wasn't supposed to be the six months culminating in Brazil of Rio plus 20. It was supposed to be the whole year. And then suddenly we were back from Rio and kind of nothing happened. And then, of course, it started again as sustainable energy for all in 2013. But for me as an outsider, I was like, what happened? Did we win? Or did we, you know, what's going on?
1: (laughs) We learned again, we started learning the politics of negotiations. And again, this I give credit to the Swedish, the Swiss ambassador who was then chairman of the General Assembly. People had convinced me to approach him, which I did to give me a decade of energy. And he said, young man, I can give you a decade. He said, they kill it. Why don't you ask for a year?
0: A year. Choose,
1: no, yeah. choose a year. I said, well, I'll choose 2012 uh, to 2013, because I think the Montreal Protocol No, Kyoto Protocol. Kyoto Protocol was also coming to an end around that period. So the experts advised me to choose that time. So we spent that time now understanding the UN negotiating process because after Rio, remember there was a huge outcome document. Now you have to negotiate hard what goes in to an SDG and what cannot go in.
0: Of That's course, right. was I this, think... Yeah, I remember there was this document called The Future We Want, which was about this thick. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even, the future was so complex, I never made it to the last page.
1: Yeah, the good news was that uh, we got the Year of Sustainable Energy for All, yeah. which went very well. We focused on New York at that time to get the, the diplomats headed to it, and that was the purpose. We brought in people from their countries. Remember, most of the diplomats are not engineers. They're not energy people. But we brought people from their countries to talk about technology. I remember doing launches, a lot of embassies, African embassies, the European Union as a group, uh, very supportive, the Indian government, Brazil. So after Rio, I had these big countries now sending their ministers or their businessmen or experts to explain to different communities in New York, communities of ambassadors, why their country thought energy was important. The Saudi uh, ambassador became very helpful to us because at that time, Saudi was trying to invest heavily in in a new research center on on renewables. They were going to do some uh, uh, solar farms and wind farms. So, and they were pushing energy efficiency. Prince uh, um, Abdelaziz, was on my advisory board, and he was trying to drive energy efficiency yeah. in Saudi Arabia. So you move forward. Then we launched the initiative: a sustainable energy for all. Chad Holiday and I continued. Now, still as Chad was now chair of the board, I, I was uh, also co-chair. We we continued from twenty twelve to twenty thirteen to continue to define those three goals. And then we defined the targets underneath. And then we had to work with research centers, International Energy Agency, the uh, NREL. Morgan, Morgan linked me up with NREL in the US. The Indian Terry, the Energy Resources Institute. We also had to collaborate with um, Accenture on efficiency. They became, in Paris, they drove energy efficiency for me. And um, a number of companies. So we created clusters. So you had, uh, um, 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 solar groups forming a cluster on renewable energy with companies and, and research centers. Uh, then we create, created a knowledge hub in, in the World Bank with some of the best research entities on research to help so that everything I said in public was backed by good mm-hmm. analysis. Uh, that helped me. We had a finance group led by Bank of America, they brought in Citigroup. At that time, I didn't know what a green bond was, but they were working on it. So, by the time we were in 2015, when we went for the big uh, uh, adoption of the new sustainable development goals, our goal was defined two years ahead of everybody. And let me give you something else that was going parallel. I created two energy forums that still exist today, I created the Vienna Energy Forum. I created a Vienna, and, and I wanted it to become the Energy Davos. And you wouldn't believe it. And then I invited Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger. to come to the show. That's right.
0: I was going to say, I was, I was there. I was there. I met him. Uh.
1: <laughs> I brought Schwarzenegger to the show. Now, the Vienna Energy Forum became the knowledge hub, in a sense, because everybody came, 2,000 people. Schwarzenegger just made it. You know, really prominent for us. Students wanted to be there.
0: Vienna. Just to be just to be clear, you you are in Vienna now as we speak because yeah. of your time at UNIDO, which was yeah. based in Vienna, correct?
1: Yeah. yeah. And so we had another. And so I created the Vienna Energy Forum, which we held every two years. And then I created another forum, which we call the Sustainable Energy for All Forum in New York. Right. Two different audiences. People said it's a duplication. I say no. New York is meant for diplomats and more civil society groups. Vienna was for the for the energy experts. So I had over five hundred energy experts managed from around the world because they were working on the global energy access report for the International Institute of Applied Systems Analysis. That's,
0: that's um, Naki Naki Sandwich.
1: Naki sandwich exactly, Professor Naki Sandwich. Yes. So in Vienna, I created an audience for the academics, the researchers, but on top of them, thanks to Schwarzenegger, other people decided to come. So suddenly I was running two big forums, but then your forum was always juxtaposed in April, in the middle of these two events. And all of them was building political momentum three years. The Vienna Energy Forum was useful for a reason. In the Vienna Energy Forum, We could throw any idea on the table. Why? These were experts. Any crazy idea will come. So we tested a lot of things in Vienna before facing politics in New York. So my targets, the day I said in the Vienna Energy Forum, and it was deliberate, that we're going to establish a new target, 30% renewables in the global energy mix by 2030. There was an opera. Mr. Keller, question and answer time, 2004. Where did you get that number from? <laughs> How did you arrive at that number? I said, well, I'm a politician. I am a global advocate. I'm telling you that I believe it's doable. And some experts from about three, four institutions have told me that that pathway is possible. You prove me wrong. Of course, they tolerated me. Everybody knew me then. And the debate started amongst the experts some saying it was doable. The NGOs saying that is cowardly, it's not enough. Um, in fact, I had a petition in my hand from friends of the earth and 25 NGOs telling me the targets I was beginning to advocate for were too modest. I was not ambitious enough. Now here's the joke, 30% became realistic because the uh, 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 UNFCCC came with scenarios that were forty-five percent and seventy percent. Suddenly, Jumkela did not look stupid anymore. Thirty <laughs> percent seemed feasible. But I give you an, a U.S. story about those numbers. Again, I said all of this was learning. I was called into State Department. I'll not name who called me there. And I was very nervous, wondering why they wanted to see me. These were negotiators for UN, for the UN, United States in the COP. And they put me down. Mr. Keller, we want to help you. But where are you getting your numbers from? We hear you talk about 30% renewables by 2030. 40% improvement in energy efficiency. Are you kidding me? You think we will go to US Congress with your numbers? You want to impose numbers on the United States? And this is a backdoor for climate change. So we started back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then one of them said, we want to help you. Why don't you change it to words? For example, if you say double the share of renewables in the global energy mix, you get 30% by 2030, because now it's at, it's at 15%. I said, are you kidding me? They say, yeah. Globally, it's between 13 to 14%, maybe 15 If you say double the share, there are no numbers. We can sell that in the States. Take your energy efficiency. You want 40% if you push for 1.5% or 2% per year, you get your 40%. And this was around 2010. They say, you can. They say, so leave the numbers, use words. I left the meeting, I called the researchers. I say, hey, is this true? Everybody started checking. They say, it is true. I went back to New York, (laughs) sat with Bob Orr. You remember Bob Orr? I was was gonna say, this is a name we have to, we can't finish this without Bob Bob Orr. Bob Orr was my man in the SG's Absolutely. office.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And he delivered the SG each time we needed him for 10 minutes or 30 minutes in every forum. Over he, three, he did it three for me days. as
0: well. He did it for me as well. If I it was fantastic. To, if I needed this and, SG to talk at a conference, I had to go to Bob. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and so I called Bob. I said, Bob, the, we have organized a luncheon for the Secretary General with all these ministers at the General yeah. Assembly and Heads of States. We have to change these things to words. He checked also with other researchers, MIT and so on. He called me back. He said, Kande, yes. So we tested it in a luncheon in New York. And two friends called me out right in the middle of the lunch, the moment Secretary General finished his speech. And they said, Kande, what happened to our numbers? Of course, those two friends were climate folks. Yeah. And they the wanted numbers the numbers. Are
0: still there.
1: Thank you. And I said, hey, and I was frank with them. I said, here's what happened. So we changed it. And you see the response is very good in the hall. One backed off. Another one was also a negotiator from the European Union, pulled me aside. What happened to the numbers? You remember we have 20, 20, 20. You used to have a a universal access 30% and 40%. What happened? And again, I gave the explanation.
0: But the great triumph was that this became SDG seven, this is now locked in until 2030. Everybody has to live with Camde's numbers, Camde's double double the energy efficiency, uh, double the proportion of renewables and universal access. That's now enshrined, which must've been a huge triumph. You must've felt pretty uh, pleased at the end of that journey.
1: Yeah, at the end of that journey, I was really happy. Kofi Annan did something for me as well. Kofi Annan, Ted Turner they invited me to New York to give me an award for global leadership. And that award had also been, Desmond Tutu and myself, on stage. And Kofi told me privately, he said, young man, you've achieved something big that you don't realize. You mobilize the world. He said, as Secretary General, I knew how difficult energy discussions are. He said, my first reform proposal I included a statement on energy, but it was just three or four lines. You pulled off a coalition. Everybody agreeing on an energy target. So then of course, you know, when you do well, you've seen it in your career. Some people are planning ahead for you already. Of course, my good friend, Chad Holiday. Chad is like a mentor to me. Uh, Chad again pulled me aside. He says, so Kande, you have your targets. The world is happy. But how do you do it? I said, hey, Chad, that's for the experts to deliver now And the government. He said, yes. no. There's a momentum here on energy. Let's talk about investments, delivery mechanisms. I said, please, sir, I have given so much of my life to this yes. thing. I need a life. So, indeed, Chad, again, Tim Watts, some other guys, they say, hey, Andrew Steer. Andrew Steer, uh, he's now at um, uh, WRI. No, WRI yeah, w- w- right, World Resources, w- Resources w- Institute. Another Andrew, great
0: friend, another. a great friend yeah. to both of us.
1: Yeah. A lot of good friends. Andrew pulled me aside as well. He said, "Hey, Kanda, the, the job is not finished. Uh, we need to move more. We need action now." And I remember in the UK, uh, 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 Prime Minister Cameron, Prime Minister Cameron was hosting um, a meeting for the Clean Energy Ministerial. That's right. And I was smuggled into that. Secretary Chu and others, uh, they had included me in the meeting in India. And, you know, I learned now from you private sector guys that you have five minutes to make a pitch. That's it, Captain, <laughs> And the media teams. So they started teaching me how to make a pitch for five minutes. So I got used to this thing now, being dragged in front of television or this big meetings with people like cameron and the prime ministers but for five minutes and they'll coach me exactly what i had to say and i had to leave so i walked in there but they said hey you're unpredictable we don't know how you're going to say it but these three words have to be there and i go in, bam i make my pitch so we started thinking now implementation and one of the contributions so we got our sdg but then we needed financing And that's where Chad Holliday became instrumental. He convinced the CEO of Bank of America to put a team together. They put some of their best minds in uh, Bank of America. They brought in Citigroup and others into the discussion. They came up with innovative financing instruments in a report. They believed in the report so much that when I did an event in New York, the CEO came there himself. He said, we believe in what we've recommended and we're putting a billion dollars on the table. And then another friend, Commissioner P-Bags of the yeah. European Commission. We, we achieved so much with P-Bags and uh, uh, President Barroso. I was in Brussels so often. P-Bags then moved, made convinced the EU to have energy as their third pillar in their development program. And EU put about 2 to 3 billion euros in support to countries, developing countries, that would prioritize energy, of course, including renewables. Because this, some of these countries they did not have the basic policy document. So they had money now for technical assistance. They had money. Barroso put 400 million euros in EIB that countries could have access to if they had investment plans. So World Bank, I mean, you saw the development banks, African, all of them putting monies in to the development programs, the UK and uh, Denmark, Austria, all of these guys, Um, I have to give credit to the president of Austria, President Fischer. Fischer gave me every support you can imagine. Um, Once I hosted presidents here in the Vienna Energy Forum, and by sheer coincidence, they were all center-left presidents from Chile and uh, Spain. He hosted them in the Hofburg. So, and when I did events in New York, how, even if he was busy, President Fischer would give me 30 minutes. He'll come to the event even in the evening. And of course here, they use their diplomatic channels. So we move from getting the targets to getting delivery, which means monies, into various organizations, Esma, The donors increase their funding for Esma. I also have to give credit to the Moroccans. The Moroccans had started big initiatives on desert, uh, concentrated solar.
0: Was Power Africa uh, in the US? Was that part of it?
1: Power Africa came later.
0: Came later, okay.
1: Power Africa came later. But yes, they were willing to talk to us. But Hillary Clinton and Mrs. Clinton, we have to give her credit. She launched the initiative on clean cooking uh, for us at that time. And I was on stage with them at the Clinton Global Initiative, by the way. That was another forum that uh, influenced me because I watched an interview. Bill Clinton was asked, how come 10 years after he had left the presidency, every year he successfully hosted heads of states and his initiative. And of course, uh, billionaires came there to pledge. He said something which made me develop the the New York forum. He said, look, we already have a ready-made audience. They come to the, the UN anyway. What I have done is give them another event where they can come and have action on critical global challenges. They say, so part of my success is also because they're here already. But of course, you cannot come here without making a pledge. So we took some of those ideas. Uh, 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 Jim Rogers and I used to go there to the Clinton Global Initiative on Energy Access. They picked up energy access as well. But then we started redesigning our program, our conference in New York with the help chat Holiday, that if private sector people came or countries came, they had to make a commitment of some sort to take action. So you've seen that we started moving in to implementation, the high impact programs, you spun off one or two of those into in uh, some private sector, young guys picked up some of your ideas. For companies, um, Arif, Arif Cohen, Yarif Cohen. You remember yes. his initiative that that's helped Rwanda push um, for distributed energy.
0: By the way, I'm still on his advisory board. Okay, uh, it's called Ignite Solar, and Ignite. Into, um, Ignite Solar for medicine. Basically, it's now um, solar to power medical access, and of course, that's, that's very important in these times of COVID. That there's diagnostic okay. equipment and so on across the developing world. So that's what yeah. he's doing now, still doing it, I'm doing it very so well. So now,
1: I mean, I left the UN five years ago, what I can tell you, well, I, yeah, okay. Yeah, let,
0: let, let, me, let me ask about that because 20, uh, 2015, um, you know, this is, you, 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 I know you, could, I know you, you could continue for as long as I let you talking about all these other marvelous people came along. I was in some of those Clinton Global Initiative um, pledge sessions and, 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 uh, was an extraordinary time. So people did really kind of pile in. And we're in a different world now for energy in uh, the developing world. But you, in 2015, you announced that you would be going, uh, leaving sustainable energy for all. with so much unfinished business. But you were going to go back into, you handed over to somebody who was actually um, our guest on the second episode of Cleaning Up, Rachel Kite incredibly, of course, able, i mean, the perfect person to take this all forwards. But you then decided to go back and serve in Sierra Leone. Yes. Um, was that a difficult decision? I, I, you know, I want, I, want to, I want to understand that because it was such a kind of, I mean, in some ways it was a big career change.
1: I would not say it was difficult because it was an emotional decision. So, uh, but it was a huge risky decision. Uh, most of my friends disagreed with me because I was at the pinnacle of my career. I had built something that uh, the world needed then. and But I was influenced a lot also by Ebola. Uh, my country had been devastated the year before, 2014, by Ebola. And in the middle of doing energy stuff, I was also on Quest Meets business, um, on CNN, I, I i was on sky news bbc al jazeera advocating for for uh, help to my country on ebola at that time also i was a little frustrated with the bad indicators uh, my country was always at the bottom of the heap on human development or one of the three worst countries on so many targets and so it was an emotional decision when i saw how i went to the country three times doing ebola um, how devastating Ebola was. And I said, look, this will break this country. We need a new leadership. I have to go help. And of course, I had seen around the world, I had traveled a lot to many countries, emerging economies, poor countries, you name it. And I had, so, I had, seen, I had seen what good leadership meant. That, I mean, my big example sometimes used to be Angela Merkel when she announced that she was going to phase out nuclear power. And then I used to go to uh, Klaus Topfer's uh, 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 sessions in in Potsdam. And I saw how these guys were thinking about energy systems, innovation, but what it meant. I was once invited to the Bundestag and Klaus invited me there. And I saw how they were thinking and how that decision by uh, Angela Merkel, fed into universities, introducing courses on energy economics uh, and energy systems. I saw what was happening there in research, in innovation. But then I remembered stories in the U.S. about Sputnik, uh, how Sputnik had influenced science and technology in the States uh, because of that challenge. Of course, then I had been with Vestas, some of the energy companies. I see them projecting scenarios for 10, 20 years. And I said, that's where leadership comes in. Good leadership at the strategic level, building the right teams and setting a vision. So that motivated me to want to go home. But then also, I had been to Rwanda, I had been to Cambodia, countries that had war, war worse than the civil war we had. And I saw how they had transformed at that time already, 2015. I had Pascal Lamy, who was head of WTO and I, had hosted a meeting years before in, in Cambodia. And at that year, Cambodia became self-sufficient in rice production. And I said, wait a minute, this is the country of Port Pot, destroyed. But look how they built themselves up in 10 years with factories to make Nike boots and so on. And they were moving into energy as well. So first of all, it was indignation at what was wrong with the country, but in the message of hope and possibilities and innovation that I had seen in the energy space. And thirdly, disruption. At that time, there was a lot of talk by you and others about disruptive technologies. And I said, wait a minute. So yes, you can disrupt business models. You can also disrupt politics if you want. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go in there with these fresh ideas and all the goodwill I had built up to say, let's see if we can transform the lives of seven million people, bring all these ideas and friends and networks. I remember your last session, Bloomberg New Energy Finance in New York, you gave me the podium for seven minutes. And let me tell you the clip you did, by the time I left the stage, you guys were so good. By the time I left the stage of everything I said, you picked up a clip of why I was going back. That clip became viral. It became viral everywhere. They say, wow, he's leaving this audience. And remember that day you told me, Candy, you're standing in front of funds managers that amongst them maybe are sitting on $3 billion, $300 billion. These guys invest in all kinds of innovation. Tell them why you're going home, but tell them what the work you've done already and the challenges ahead. And of everything I said, <laughs> your team picked out those three minutes. And I remember leaving the stage your moderator, the lady who used to coordinate everything, she came up to me and said, Kande, I almost came to tears when I heard what you said. Lo and behold, bam, that clip came out. So I went home. Very difficult transition because I was greeted rough. I immediately saw the rough nature of real politics. I've been there now five years, no regrets. I am convinced my country needs new ideas. We need to be part of the 21st century. When you see the problems we have and how archaic our institution, institutions are, you realize how much enlightenment is required. But also now, let me tell you, the advantage for my work in energy. Now I live in ground zero. Electrification rate in my country is less than 15%, okay? My constituency I represent is one of the poorest in terms of energy access, but also one of the poorest in terms of development in the country. Some of the worst uh, social indicators, one of the highest maternal mortality rates. In fact, I think the second or third highest maternal mortality rate in the country with the highest maternal mortality rate. And so you can see all of that, high teenage pregnancy. But every month, I have to be in my constituency. And they got their first mini-grid a year ago.
0: Can you remember that yes. I have a little bit of, uh, although I've never been to Sierra Leone, I have a little bit of an insight into this because of the project that I did um, Bo- three years ago, actually, yes. um, with my wife and with a, a bunch yes. of friends in yeah. Bo. Government Hospital, where yes, I saw a tweet late at night from an Irish doctor, um, Dr. Niall Conroy, whom I believe you've met since, uh, or certainly sp- spoken to. Um, yes. and, and he tweeted and said that there was a power cut and three babies died. And yes. this is unacceptable in, yes. in, a, in a modern world. And, I, and yes. it hit me, I was going to some posh dinner with the, yeah. um, the Taoiseach yeah. of Ireland and yeah. so on. And I just thought that is unacceptable. And we went and we built a solar and battery system, and we had all sorts of problems doing it. I mean it was a tough, tough, tough project yeah. to manage, yeah. uh, but I did get some insight and I've seen the videos of how just how transformational really quite yes. modest interventions uh, yes. can be and we are in an era where the, the 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 you know the the plus side is that we can accelerate and move very quickly um, yeah. but but it's It's not trivial by any means.
1: It's not trivial. And today my advocacy is even better grounded. Because why? I am in the ground zero of what energy poverty means and how it touches everything. Uh, Second, I am with the real people. Yeah. Uh, Second, I'm in the legislature. So i mean You're a member
0: of parliament and a party leader. I'm a member
1: of parliament. And people thought I was crazy. I said, well, everything has to go to parliaments. In, in developing countries, in developed countries, you need legislation to back policy, uh, to give confidence to um, investors. And, and just That's for, the,
0: for, for, the, for the audience, just to, to, to remind them or to let them know, because they may not know, you went back to stand in the, in 2016, 15, 16, to stand in the presidential elections in 2018 yes. Yes. Um, did very well for a new party and a new player, yeah. but didn't become president. And so yeah. you took on the role though, you took up your place as a member of parliament, which is where yeah. you are today, right?
1: Yes, I ran for president. I lost woefully.
0: And when you say that, story. I mean.
1: Uh, uh, that's another story for another time, but I got a feel for real politics. Right. I, and um, I saw everything that vested interest can do to resist good ideas, to resist reform, because there's always a political economy and a kleptocracy that benefits from chaos. Yeah, and I don't care how good your ideas are. uh, If it's ideas about reforming systems, bringing in more transparency, accountability, uh, longevity of public policy, everything I learned on investments uh, in my two decades of work on energy and seeing how other countries move forward with change and institutional reforms. Anytime you do good reforms, somebody will lose money and they fight back. And when you have weak institutions and in my country 70% illiteracy. So in a way you can argue that I was way up here on strategy but with 70% illiteracy, it was hard to connect. Also the politics, I was, my, my new party was not, was deliberately not given a register to, to, to I mean a license to operate till five months before the elections. And we didn't have enough money. Uh, uh, others had money. So anyway, I chose to be in parliament and I have learned a lot about the good and the bad of law and, and the bad in lawmaking. I have also seen how generally, corruption is probably the number one impediment to change and development. Corruption in every which way, in every institution that you need for progress and what we call lack of sector governance, whether it's in mining, in energy, and energy is a big thing in developing countries where there's big money to be made. And if you don't have proper sector governance but people can make money, they can keep so many people in darkness, policies will be difficult to, to, to move forward. Right. And yes. so I'm learning a lot. And since I have been back, especially uh, the last two years, I have been called to many, many more forums. And I do a webinar, a Zoom call, maybe two, two or three a week, in some days four, because why? People call on me now, they say, Kande, you now have an experience which some of us can only talk about. You are, you are deep in lawmaking and deep in politics, real politics, and, uh, and how politics influences everything. And so I am on an IMF World Bank Parliamentary Forum on COVID. I am in the climate parliament. I am in the IRENA legislators forum. So I have continued my energy work, advisory roles. I'm on the board of the Rocky Mountain Institute, a number of initiatives with the EU. But now I even believe my advocacy is sharper because now I'm sitting in in a developing country. Let me ask
0: you a question on that though, because what you said on corruption uh, is very, is particularly interesting because it never gets talked about explicitly. I have never been at a World Bank event, at a, a World Economic yeah. Forum event, at a Clinton yeah. Global Initiative event, at a Bloomberg New Energy Finance event, at a, at, you know, none, none of these forums will they actually say, right, we're having a session on yeah. corruption. Yeah. What does it do? What are the impacts? How can you get past it? Who's done well? Who's yeah. doing badly? It's like, no, let's not talk about it. Because, because
1: your... yeah, people are sensitive about it. And right. if, if an outsider talks about it, it means the outsider is being patronizing and yes. insulting. Um, I have had the opportunity, especially, uh, well, of course throughout the campaign, but now in the past two years, I've been invited to some ac- events um, in Zimbabwe, in Nigeria, in South Africa, in other places, where people are just shocked that, wait a minute, he's brought up the seawater and he's talking about it. And I can do it because I'm an African. I am now in politics. I have seen it inside out. I'm also from, a develop, from the developing world. I've been around, I've been to countries that are performing well and those that are not performing well. And when I talk about corruption, I'm not talking about, it, about theory. I'm talking about it from countries that are failing, and countries that have been successful developing countries that have made a real commitment to probity and because they want real big investments to come in. And so um, I feel comfortable talking about it. And I believe that in the next few years I'll be doing more of that because I know for sure, I knew it in the UN, there are studies by, UNDP and others about the imp- and World Bank about the impact of corruption on public policy on investments and and so on now those studies are there but I can talk about it as an insight yeah
0: and can I ask you I'm going we're going to draw to a close unfortunately we're we've run out of time but it's been so fascinating and I thank you for your time but uh, just a, a, a final question if I might um, so you've got all these international forums now that you've got even more credibility than before. I mean, you know, you, you had a lot of credibility in, in, you know, when I was uh, working with you up till 2015. Um, but will you be going for president again? I mean, there must be another cycle in presumably 2022,
1: 2023. 2023. Yeah. Let us put it this way. I'll cross that bridge when I get there. Uh, all options are on the table. But my pet project right now is setting up the Energy Nexus Network. I have registered it as a formal center, knowledge hub, to bring in people like you and others using digital technology for capacity building, for, to, be advise, to play an advisory service to development agencies. And um, uh, so that one I have set up. I'm trying to raise money for it. And that, for me, is my ultimate dream, to have a knowledge hub in the middle of about four or five very poor countries where we can make a difference. Um, I'm receiving help now from some friends. Uh, We have also received our first uh, offer uh, as a partner, but I'm on several advisory efforts. That's one. The second one is we've built a new coalition on clean cooking. Uh, you, uh, thanks to you and many people, electrification is moving on very well. For the first time, maybe, if you look at the World Bank numbers, we are below a, less than a billion people without electrification. But Michael, we have not made any difference That's in three decades on clean cooking. In fact, the numbers have gone up. 2.8 billion people without clean cooking. So what has That's happened? UN, some other friends have called me in. They say, Kande, we need you to do for clean cooking what you and many people did over a decade for electrification and energy access. So uh, last, last September in New York with the World Bank, I moderated their session to launch uh, a fund for five hundred million billion to leverage $2 billion in clean cooking investments. Again, we're talking the, lab, the right language. In the past, we treated clean cooking as a charity case. or oh, throw $2 million at it, no. So we've come full, full, full circle. So say we treat it the same way we treated electrification, whether by renewables or any other source, it's about investments, which means public policy, regulation, an enabling environment for investments, technology deployment, capacity building, and, and finance. So we're doing the same with clean cooking, and um, we're setting up, we've created a new initiative hosted by WHO called the Health Energy Platform. We're setting up a coalition of leaders because even developing countries do not prioritize it. Some of it, they see it as a women's issue. But of course, the forests are disappearing very fast. The cities are demanding charcoal. And i give you some numbers. 2.8 billion people without clean cooking solutions. And all the projections from International Energy Agency and others, they show that Africa will fear worse over the years. India also still has about 600 million people without clean cooking solutions, but they're making a difference with LPG and other solutions. Second, forests are disappearing uh, fast. The the black carbon from uh, bushfires and charcoal are causing greater melting of of ice caps than even other greenhouse gases. So, and then of course, the health issue. Form over 4 million premature deaths Every year, it is worse than HIV, it's malaria and tuberculosis combined, and I call it a silent tsunami. Eighty percent of those uh, fatalities are women and children. Yeah,
0: yeah, and
1: I told you I'm in ground zero in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. No food processing takes place without heat, and it is the women who farm, come back, and do the processing along the value chain and they're inhaling these fuels, killing them 24-7.
0: You know, Kanye. I remember 2016 um, at the, there was the Africa Utility Forum. They gave you a lifetime achievement award, um, and you gave a keynote and you got up and you gave this amazing speech about how this and that and the other, and it was all unacceptable. Yes. And, and it made me brave because I've echoed, I've channeled your outrage at some of these statistics and some of these ongoing um, blights on, on, on human health. Uh, I've tried to do my best to represent, um, you know, to channel you and to also, uh, although I come from the other end of the world and I have a, I'm sitting here in a lovely uh, place in London, uh, to say that this. Ongoing problem, clean cooking, lack of electrification, it is unacceptable that it it continues today. Uh, So I I learned at your knee, I learned from you, I've learned enormous amount um, from my involvement in um, the precursors to Sustainable Energy for All, from the year of Sustainable Energy for All, from then the organization, from you personally, and also from this session here tonight. So uh, with that, I'd really like to thank you Um, for everything that you've done for others, and also uh, for me in this space, and hopefully here uh, this evening for our audience. Thank you very, very much, Kande.
1: Thank you for having me, I'm very grateful. And we continue to collaborate, because the job is not finished yet.
0: Uh, Ah, yes, and I will put the the website for the Energy Nexus Network uh, into the notes for the YouTube channel and the podcasts so that anybody who's interested uh, you can see what a powerhouse of energy uh, Kande is and if you want to get involved uh, whether it's with a donation or with I know Kande he'll accept whatever help you can possibly offer to him uh, and you'll be able to do that through the show notes for this episode of Cleaning Up. Kande thank you very very much.
1: Thank you so much very grateful. <music>